Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and Aaron Miller is with me as always as my co-host. Uh, we have a few uh, topics to cover this week. Obviously, we're recording this the week before Apple's big September event at which we're expecting new iPhones, uh, new Apple TV hardware, potentially some other stuff as well. And so one of our topics is going to be uh, a preview and that, that'll be the topic that we kick off with today. It will be a preview of next week's event, um, which I will be attending um second topic is our question of the week and that's actually going to be a drill down to some extent on the event preview we're going to focus specifically on the apple tv and uh aaron's going to tackle that this week and talk about how competitive the apple tv might be as a gaming console and then we're going to have a third sort of briefer topic which will be the announcement this week that Android Wear devices will now work with the iPhone. Um, so we'll have a brief discussion of that and then we'll wrap up as usual with our weekly pick. And it's my turn this time around and I have an app that I'm going to recommend this week. So let's kick off with the event preview. Um, the event is on uh, Wednesday next week. It's, it's been on Tuesday the last couple of years. It's on Wednesday this week, likely because Monday is Labor Day. Um, and so uh, it'll be Wednesday morning Pacific time. And uh, as I say, iPhone's certainly the headline uh, items there, iPhone 6S, 6S Plus, 6 Plus S. We'll have to see how that pans out. Um, Apple TV, though, new Apple TV hardware. We're obviously going to spend some time drilling down on that with, with Aaron in a few minutes. Um, and then there's also the possibility that we'll see iPads. And there's been sort of rumors going both ways about iPads, um, about whether or not they'll make an appearance. Obviously, if they do make an appearance at the September event, it makes it that much less likely that Apple will have what's also been a traditional October event uh, this time around. So Aaron, I don't know if you have any thoughts about all of that um, or about the iPad thing specifically. That seems to be the thing that's most up in the air at this point. Yeah, I definitely think iPhones and Apple TV are enough. I was really surprised to read the iPad predictions today. Um, and that seems to come from two sources, from Mark Gurman at 9to5Mac and John Pichkowski, right? And 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 yeah. And both of them are hedging those predictions, if you mm -hmm. if you yeah. notice. I mean, yeah. in the way they phrased it, they've sort of said, look, Apple seems to be planning on it. Um, I think John Peschkowski called it likely, but that still leaves room for it not showing up. I, I, I don't know. I have a hard time imagining iPads showing up. I think it's pretty, it sounds pretty crowded yeah. already. Yeah, I mean, WWDC was such a crowded event this year, and I think... There was a lot of people saying as much afterwards, and you wonder whether they'd follow that up with yet another really crammed event. Because, I mean, we've got Watch OS 2 um, as another thing. You know, it's no right. new hardware there necessarily, although, again, a report today, I think, again, from Mark Gurman saying that there might be some new watch band colors. Um, but Watch OS 2 is due to launch this fall. Obviously, you've got El Capitan um, publicly being released at some point this fall. Um, that's been something that's often been coupled with new Mac hardware for the October event. So, right. you know, there's all this other stuff that's got to happen sometime this fall. And the question is just why would Apple suddenly collapse this all into a single event in September rather than splitting it as it has done for the last couple of years? Yeah, I think there will be an October event. Um, it, it seems to me likely that iPads will be in the October event along with some new Mac hardware. Intel's been releasing details this week about the new Skylake processors, mm -hmm. and those are going to yeah. be, those are they're kind of trickling out at first in some of the lower end devices, um, but there there will probably be some new Mac hardware showing up um, mm -hmm. in the fall. Yeah. I, I don't think, for example, that El Capitan is going to get announced next week. Right. I think they're going to spend. I think they'll put that off to another event. So I think next week what you see announced is. Uh, 
is iOS 9 and watchOS 2. Right. That would make sense, certainly. Yeah. Um, so we, we, b before we started recording, we had a brief conversation about um, the kind of reporting that goes on around these events ahead of time. And, you know, just as we've been preparing this Wednesday today, as we're recording this, just today, Mark Gurman of 9to5Max put out, I think, either two or three separate pieces about what to expect next week. And this is hardly the first stuff he's published either about this uh, September event. Um, and John Patchkowski at BuzzFeed, formerly of Recode, um, has also been publishing some stuff corroborating in part some of what Mark Gurman's been writing about. And this, this is always one of these fascinating things about covering Apple because um, over the last couple of years in particular, there have been these uh, news outlets that have been getting a lot of the details right, uh, especially in the immediate run-up to the event the sort of week or two before. And, and Mark Gurman in particular has quite a good track record. Um, and that there are often, you know, he's, he's, you know, there's this site tech meme that kind of uh, aggregates the, the big tech news on any given day and Mark Gurman's frequently kind of top of their leaderboard in breaking news often because he has stuff that's totally exclusive to him because his, his sources have kind of uncovered it um, but there are obviously quite a few others out there that report this stuff too and I you know I know a number of these reporters personally that cover Apple at some of the major publications and it's interesting to talk to them because Apple has a couple of different ways of communicating. We did talk about this a little bit in the context of the Apple Music launch and how Apple PR is changing in one of our earlier episodes. But, um, you know, there is this interesting sort of mix of kind of off the record but from official sources versus from unofficial sources, people within Apple or people in the supply chain or whatever. My understanding is that Mark Gurman's reporting is all from people that are very close to Apple but are not sanctioned to talk about these things. And as a result, he doesn't get invited to any of the Apple events or anything like that, even though, you know, 9to5Mac is one of the biggest Mac blogs out there, I think, because they have so much of this leaked stuff that they publish. Uh, they don't get invited, they don't show up at these events, whereas virtually every publication that's worth noting that does cover Apple or, you know, major business publications get invites to these events. So that, that lends me to believe that he's not getting any of this stuff from the official sources, whereas some of these other publications, I think a lot of what they report does come through official channels. It's just kind of off the record and has to be cited as sources familiar with the matter or things like that. So it's always interesting to watch that. But, you know, I, I set a lot of store by what Mark Gurman reports. He certainly does a, a good job and the vast majority of what he reports ends up being true ultimately. This has been especially interesting because he has gone kind of whole hog on the details. I'm amazed yeah. that he has pinned down as many technical details about the announcements next week. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the way down to the amount of storage in the predicted Apple TV. Right. You know, it, that was one of the things I was curious about, and we're going to talk about that when we get mm -hmm. to the question of the week. But I, I tell you what, if he does not have sort of official sources giving him this information he has got a really brave source at apple <laughs> yeah and, and, and i have so to believe details. maybe even more than one because you know it's not like it's all from the same team or anything like it'd be one thing if you right. had a source on the iphone team but he's getting this information about the iphone about the apple tv about the ipads about software you know, there's so many different areas, and that's what I always find interesting. And Mark Gurman's a young guy. He's a college student. So, right. you know, he started doing this when he was very young um, and somehow managed to get, you know, one or more sources there. But I, I wonder if he's now cultivated to the point that he has several of them. Um, but, yeah, it's really – he's done good work there. Yeah, he, he, must, he either has several sources or one very highly placed source. Right. Um, but it's true. Apple – and I've seen this firsthand at Apple. Um, they partition – their 
teams very carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. mean, teams, you know, you could be on a particular software team or hardware team, and you're not allowed to talk about what you're working on when you're at lunch at Cafe Max. Right. Uh, it, 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 I was actually warned about that one time. And was this when you were doing the iMovie stuff that you right, used to yeah. do? Right, yeah. And, and, you know, th- this matters immensely to Apple. Um, like privacy and security, you know, matters so much to Apple that it's deeply ingrained in the culture. And so if Mark Gurman is really getting this from unauthorized sources, uh, they're, they're going against something that's very deeply embedded culturally at Apple. Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. It must be incredibly frustrating if you're within Apple to see a lot of this <laughs> stuff, especially the detail leak out the week before yeah, your big and event. It, I, and that's the other thing is it seems like this amount of detail, level of detail, you'd have an easier time pinning down the sources. But right. apparently that has not been the case yet. No, no, no. Um, any thoughts about specific stuff? I mean, we've done a little bit of kind of conversation before about, um, you know, what we're expecting to see, you know, with iPhones, um, you know, same basic form factor, um, introduction of forced touch, uh, possibly with a name change. That's another thing that Mark Gurman's been reporting on. Um, but introduction of forced touch into at least the iPhone, if iPads are announced and that's possible, iPad pro apparently may well have some kind of stylus that works uh, in a particular way with forced touch. Um, so those seem like big kind of hardware upgrades. It seems the cameras might get a boost. There might be 4K video recording in the iPhones. Um, you know, the usual sort of spec bumps going from A8 to A9 processors and things like that. Um, right. I, any other big things that I'm missing here? I am excited about the camera bump. And I, I think people are, I, I mean, people aren't talking about it a whole lot, the, mm-hmm. the, the camera bumps into the iPhones. But... I, I'm excited about them. I think 12 megapixels is the different versus eight is the difference between taking an iPhone photo that you can actually print versus mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, you can print four by sixes, but you can't really right. print, print big photos that come off of your iPhone because the, me- the the pixel count is just too low. Right. And I think a 12 megapixel, which seems to be a lock as far as you know the predictions go. I actually went over to Austin Mann's uh, website. He did that really cool feature of the iPhone cameras in Iceland. I don't know if you ever saw those. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he, he kind of stuck his neck out a little bit to make some camera predictions. I don't think he, he may know stuff. I don't know. I, maybe Apple hired I doubt it. it. I doubt know. he'd write anything about it if he did, uh, yeah, to your point yeah. earlier about how carefully no, Apple true. guards this stuff. But his predictions were 4K video, yes, 12 megapixels, yes. But along with that 12 megapixel prediction, he thinks that low light performance is not going to improve. Hmm. Um, Interesting, okay. He thinks there'll be a faster burst mode and that slow-mo will be, slow-mo video will be at a higher resolution because right now they shoot at 720p when you do the really slow, mm-hmm. the really high the frame rate 120 slow-mo. or whatever, yeah. Yeah, it's 240 and it's 240. at 720p and he thinks mm-hmm. that'll bump to 1080p. I don't know. The, the thing is, I just, more than any other camera, I'm using my iPhone and yeah. I, I'm on the two-year cycles with my phones. I don't like, I don't get a new one every year, but... Mm-hmm. And, but I'm due, right, because I have an iPhone 5S, and so I'm right. excited to upgrade. And camera upgrades are usually one of my favorite things about, about you know, upgrading to the newest iPhone. So I'm excited about the camera changes. Yeah. I, think they'll, I think they're going to be a bigger deal. And I think you'll probably see some, especially because Apple has made such a big deal out of the iPhone camera in the past and even recently, I think you're going to see, you know, 
famous photographers using iPhones around the world kind of mm. thing. So yeah, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, I mean, it would fit with a shot on iPhone campaign that they had over the past year as well. Right. Um, one of the, one of the, here's a question I have for you. So one of the interesting things about the iPhone launch this time around is the pricing that's always been listed has always been in the context of U.S. carrier subsidized pricing. Right. Um, so one ninety nine, two ninety nine type stuff. Um, you know, which obviously is the price you normally pay up front, but isn't nearly the full price of the device, which is sort of six fifty, seven fifty. Um, you know, one of the things that's been talked about a fair amount is with the shift away from subsidized pricing and towards installment pricing, which is now in the majority at all the U.S. carriers. Um, you know, does it even make sense to list that one ninety nine, two ninety nine pricing? Um, do they list kind of full retail price? Um, do they list the kind of typical monthly installments on a two year payment plan? You know, how do they do that? And so, I guess the question I have for you is, you know, as somebody who's looking to buy one of these. The other interesting wrinkle now is that you could get last year's 6 Plus or this year's 6S at the same price. So right. you could get last year's really large phone or this year's smaller of the two um, with you know better specs and so on um, for the same price. And so it creates this interesting scenario that you haven't really had before. You've got two phones at the same price. Uh, with one, you get a bigger screen and, and you know, bigger battery and a f few slight sort of performance bumps. Um, but with the other, you get the brand new hardware and some of the new features that are going to come out. So what are you thinking? Right. You know, that, I, that hadn't occurred to me, but the, the 6 Plus moving down market is a completely different situation than we've had in the history of the iPhone. Right. Because each subsequent year that a new iPhone has come out, it's been a definitive improvement. Mm -hmm. And for I, I personally don't prefer a bigger phone. I have an iPad Mini, so for me, a six plus would kind of defeat the purpose of having an iPad Mini. Right. And I like having something smaller in my pocket. Mm -hmm. But but I think there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be hung up on that. I, and the price point thing is a fascinating problem because nobody really has known how much their phone costs them until right. recently. People mm -hmm. just haven't appreciated that. They, they've always yeah. just looked at the subsidized price, and Apple has had the convenience of all their carriers charging the subsidized price, the same subsidized mm -hmm. price. Right. And so this is going to be an interesting problem. I don't think they can do like a typical installment plan thing because the different carriers have so many different kinds of installment plans. Mm. Because some are, you know, like Sprint is doing the yearly iPhone thing now. Um, mm. T-Mobile has something similar. Uh, Verizon is pricing it differently as they're spreading it out over two years. Everybody's doing their different pricing models. And so right. I, it, it, it would seem strange for me to, for Apple to pick somewhere in the middle. And so I won't be surprised if they do. I think they're going to have to talk about price. People are going mm -hmm. to want to know oh, these yeah. costs. I, I think yeah. they're going to have to go with retail. And then th it's going to take some awkward explaining on Apple's part. Mm -hmm. I yeah. picture Tim Cook doing this or maybe Phil Schiller, probably Phil mm -hmm. Schiller, because Tim Cook doesn't seem to like to deliver bad news. And <laughs> Phil Schiller's better at it anyway, I think, because um, everybody likes Phil. And so... Yeah. I, you know, I won't be surprised if there's a moment when Phil Schiller is talking about the new iPhones where he says, and now let's talk about pricing. You right. know, a funny, he'll say something like, a funny thing has happened with cell carriers over the last couple of years, and this is how things have shifted. And so I think mm -hmm. if they do it, they're going to compare the old retail prices mm -hmm. that were hidden by subsidies right. to the new retail prices that mm -hmm. are no longer hidden. And so right. I think they're going to be, rather than benchmarking against $200, $300 mm -hmm. from past years, I think they're going to say, this is how much the retail price was for an iPhone 6. 
Right. And this is how much the retail price is for a 6S. I think that's mm-hmm. what's going to happen. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, I think I think they might well frame it by saying the cost is the same as last year. You know, without mentioning a specific price right. up, up front, kind of say the cost hasn't changed. The bigger phone is the same price as the last year's bigger phone. The smaller phone is the same. What that means in practical terms is the full retail price is this. But of course, for many of you here in the U.S., you're going to be buying it on some kind of installment plan where, yeah. you know, if you're paying it off over 24 months, you're going to be paying 2750. Um, but there will be a variety of other plans, and we're looking forward to working with our carrier partners to release the specific pricing data to you. Blah blah blah. blah you know, something along those lines. That's kind of what I think might well happen. But yeah, I think it will definitely be framed in the context of the pricing hasn't changed, but the model through which you'll buy it has changed quite a bit yeah. over the last year and some it's detail a, around that. It's such a boring thing for Apple to have to explain mm. in a keynote, but yeah, I don't yeah. think they're going to have an option. I yeah, I don't think you can get out of it. it. But the funny thing too is, of course, it's always just been US pricing. Like you're talking to the whole world. That's true. You act as if the rest of the world doesn't exist. You know, the first yeah. iPhone obviously was, you know, a US only device, at least at first. But, you know, ever since this, you know, later that year, you've had, you know, this device sold in many countries around the world. And, and yet, you know, the only pricing that's ever been listed is, you know, US carrier subsidized pricing, which, you know, it's kind of a funny thing in its own right. So, but as you said, I think they have to talk about pricing, but it's going to be somewhat awkward conversation this time yeah. around. I'm predicting a day when they're going to announce the price in US dollars and Chinese yuan. <laughs> yes. I mean, those are easily the two biggest markets, and actually China's bigger than right. the US now. And so. And, and so I think that's going to happen with, with these sorts of announcements, is yeah. Apple's going to announce both prices. Might well be, yeah. That'll be interesting. Um, okay. Any, any other sort of... Well, we're going to talk about the Apple TV in depth in a minute. Um, any other sort of... I mean, there's this interesting thing about the venue, um, which is a very big venue compared yeah. to the venues where Apple's done stuff b- before. I think part of it will be they'll invite a broader cross-section of press to come. Uh, I wonder if they might well pack the house with Apple employees too. I kind of wonder, you know, at the last year's event where they introduced the Apple Watch for the first time, they had quite a few Apple Watch team members uh, there as a sort of thank you, I think, to them. But it was a small venue, and so they crammed some in but you know there was a limit to what they could do there and so i wonder if you know they're going to use the kind of extra space which seems to be mostly in balconies around the outside of the venue i wonder if they're going to use that to pack the hall with people that work on iphone and apple watch as a sort of reward to them yeah that's a curious thing because with so many more seats i haven't seen anything in the press about new people getting invitations that didn't before Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, with the Apple TV, you would have thought that maybe there would be some press in the gaming world that right. might have gotten invitations to this event, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mm-hmm. seem to have surfaced. Yeah, so, no, there's been, I've seen people referring to new people being invited, but I haven't seen sort of specifics of, okay, who was it and what, right. who do they work for and what does that suggest? So. Right, because with the watch event, it was, it was noticeable, and that made right. it in the news that they were inviting yeah, yeah, people sort of to this event and, that yeah. otherwise had no interest in Apple, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So I don't know, but I am a little jealous that Apple didn't say, "Hey, Yan, we need to give your podcast partner a ticket." <laughs> so you need to get Next on year. that. Next year. <laughs> I mean, they have all uh, these extra seats, right? I uh, know, I know. They could have squeezed you into the balcony somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I had to sit in the back. I'd stand in the back. <laughs> um, any any last thoughts, kind of, before we move on to the Apple TV specifically, about anything else that might be announced? No, not really. I mean, I, I think Apple TV is probably the most exciting thing for me anyway. Yeah, so. I think, yeah, for me too. I think in terms of, you know, new products from a developer perspective, it's obviously by far the most interesting thing. Um, you know, we mentioned obviously iOS 9 and 
watchOS 2, you know, may well be sort of finalized and released in, in the days afterwards. So, um, you know, there's that interesting stuff to talk about too, but it's all kind of known stuff at this point. And if you're a developer, you've had access to those things for a long time. So I think, you know, Apple TV is easily, easily the biggest sort of new thing, biggest new opportunity too for Apple and developers. Um, so yeah, in many ways, I think that's the biggest news. iPad Pro would be interesting, but again, even there, we know, you know, iOS 9 supports a lot of the software features, you know, Force Touch would be an interesting wrinkle. Um, but there's still the possibility we don't see anything about any of that until October. So, right. um, yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to the Apple TV then um, and our question of the week. And so, um, Aaron, you spent the week kind of uh, looking into all of this. But the question that we're going to be answering is, how would an Apple TV compete as a gaming console, given that it's likely to get uh, an open SDK that will support gaming and other types of applications? Um, so let's let's start out by talking about kind of what what we're expecting from a hardware perspective here. Um, you know what what does the reporting suggest, or what do you believe based on what you've read and otherwise um, we're going to see from a hardware perspective here, and in terms of the kind of technical capabilities of this device. Right, Mark Gurman is my is my source on this. I don't know what his source is. Right, but uh, but he's he's predicting an A8 processor in the Apple uh -huh. TV. That sounds right to me. Um, the Apple TV has always been behind as far as the A-series processors are concerned. And the mm -hmm. uh, truth be told, a lot of what the Apple TVs had to do in the past hasn't required a whole lot of power. Plus, the A8 is plenty powerful um, for yeah, the, I mean, it's the current. It's the current chip in iPhones, right? right? So yeah, although at this point, I think we think of it as last year's chip because the A9 right, is on the They're going to announce the I mean, A9 the same day. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but I don't know. It, there's... It, I think the power thing is an interesting thing because really, and I should first say, I'm approaching the, the, the answers to this question of the week as a casual gamer, um, not mm -hmm. in any way a hardcore gamer. I don't right. own a PlayStation or an Xbox. And I realize that calls my perspective into question a little bit, but I think it actually enhances it because I'm looking at this as somebody who is not really into console gaming. And I'm now excited by the idea of an Apple TV. And so I think it's worth comparing this hardware to begin is going to, I think, be the first focus for a lot of gamers. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. when you look at the PlayStation and the Xbox, there's constantly arguments between the two camps, you know, the loyalists on one side or the other about which platform is better. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because the truth is they both have a reputation of being plenty powerful for the kinds yeah. of games. I was going to say they're play. very powerful pieces of hardware. It's like yeah. respect out PCs in the case of an Xbox. Right. And, and I think with that, uh, it, I mean, kind of the, the holy grail, I guess, with gaming is a 1080p resolution and 60 frames per second. Mm -hmm. I, if a, you know, if a console can put that out, then it is as, it's, it's in all practical sense as powerful as anything else. That's an interesting problem for the A8. Um, and uh, Geekbench, in doing research last year when the 6 Plus, the iPhone 6 Plus came out, hmm. found that at the, and the 6 Plus is at a 1080p resolution. So it's pushing a 6 Plus, an iPhone 6 Plus pushes the same number of pixels as most people's televisions at home. Mm -hmm. And apparently, uh, you know, and I, there's a bunch of detail here about which I am not at all an expert, but it was really cranking out maybe 20 frames per second, which is slow for gaming. Mm -hmm. I, I think one thing that's going to be interesting with the A8 is that this A8 is plugged in. Right. It's not attached so you don't have to, to worry about power management in quite the same way. Exactly. And, and I think this A8 is going to be better 
it, it, you know, I mean, the architecture is going to be fundamentally the same, but I think Apple will have found ways to make it stronger when it actually gets into the Apple TV. I was mm -hmm. expecting, to be honest, an A9 processor in it until until German's article today about it or right. yesterday. And so going with the assumption of an A8, it, I don't think the Apple TV is going to keep up with PlayStation or Xbox, but I think it will probably be better in terms of hardware spec than the Wii U. But the mm -hmm. Wii U has always been positioned as a casual device, and Nintendo has always right. approached casual gaming as kind of their market. I mean, mm -hmm. when the Wii came out, it was scandalous that it didn't support HD. Right. And uh, the Wii lasted for a really long time in spite of that because mm -hmm. the games that came on the platform were what people cared about, not so much the pixel density right. of the games they were playing. And I, and I think uh, the Wii U on the technical side is most at risk. Uh, but with an Apple TV dedicated to gaming because the Apple TV, I, th I think, is not going to be as powerful as other consoles. And so it's going to be positioned toward casual gaming, although you can count on an Unreal Engine demo <laughs> on stage <laughs> right. next, next week, I think, yep. like they've yep. done in the past. Seems very likely. And they're going to make a big deal out of metal yep. and the fact that programmers can code directly, you know, without having to go through... Um, uh, I mean, they'll be able to code directly to the chip the way that right. Apple's been bragging about for the last year. And so uh -huh. I think, yeah, I think in terms of power, I think you're going to see this position somewhere between, say, the Xbox, PlayStation, which are at one level, and the Wii U, which I think will actually be less powerful than the Apple TV. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing that's interesting from a power perspective is onboard storage. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, because the PlayStation comes with a terabyte hard drive inside. And, right. and German's reporting that it's get, that the Apple TV is going to come either with 8 gigs or 16 gigs internally. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, there's going to be a lot to make that less of a problem. I, I mean, if, if you're an iPhone user that has 16 gigs and you've been running up against a 16 gig limit and it's been driving you crazy, you know, you're not going to have photos on your Apple TV or, or videos that you've taken. Right. And so there is going to be a little more space. And Apple made such a big deal at WWDC out of app slicing, streaming assets, on-demand game levels, all those sorts of things. I, I think because the Apple TV is going to be a fresh, brand-new platform for developers, all of those size-reducing features on the, on the developer side are going to be par for the course. I think if you mm -hmm. want to develop for the Apple TV, you're going to have to do all this on-demand stuff, which right. also means an Apple TV is going to have to be probably constantly connected to the Internet. Yeah, yeah, probably. And I wonder, I wonder to what extent you'll have some sort of streaming or, or at least kind of on-the-fly kind of downloading of elements and stuff like that too. Because, I mean, Mark Gurman's report talks about 8 and 16 gigs as the possible sizes, and he was kind of noncommittal about which it would end up being, whether there would be two versions or whatever. But, you know, the Amazon Fire TV, which, you know, we haven't talked about, but is another kind of TV-centric box that also does gaming, that has 8 gigs of onboard storage. So that's very similar to the lower of the two. Um, that have been talked about for the Apple TV. And, and I remember I tried one out. I don't have one anymore, but I did try one out when they first came out. And I remember being frustrated sometimes about the fact that, you know, if you had a number of sort of biggish games on there, you would run out of space. And especially if you also wanted to store movies or things like that on it. So um, I do worry that unless there's some really clever stuff in terms of on-the-fly downloading of assets or whatever else it might be, that you might have a frustrating experience at 8 gigs. 
Um, you know, clearly you're, you're not downloading TV shows or movies or anything. You don't need to worry about the storage for that. But as a game console, you need enough space that you can keep your favorite games on it without, you know, running out of space. Right. I think, um, I, I think like, if you look, I think Infinity Blade is a good benchmark here. I, I mean, it's one of the most popular games, big games, mm-hmm. sort of high production value games on iOS. Right. And I haven't looked, I can't remember how big Infinity Blade 3 was, but I want to say it was about three gigs in okay. space. Uh, the Lego games, you know, I, I'm thinking about my kids because they really like the Lego games. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, those are usually a couple gigs or more. Right. It, it wouldn't take very long to fill up a 16 gig Apple TV. Right. And so this is why I think if you're going to develop for the Apple TV, the all the, the app thinning technologies are going to be essentially required. I, I don't think, right. yeah, I think Apple's going to kind of demand it in the development process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, so what about the developer process? Um, you know, the Apple's obviously got a large base of developers and existing developer programs around OS 10 and uh, much more importantly iOS because that's going to be the platform this thing runs. Um, so what, what have you kind of figured out or what are your sort of thoughts about how that's going to work here um, for, for the Apple TV for developers? So the PlayStation and Xbox platforms have had an interesting change over the last few years in that they've become a more adaptable, they've become an easier to reach platform for indie developers. I mean, they're the big like EA, right, and Bungie and other huge developers. Um, The the cost of developing on the Xbox or the PlayStation has never really mattered to them because they're, I mean, it's... They're going to do it anyway. Yeah, they're going to do it anyway because they're selling so many copies of their games that it's a pretty tiny cost to get into developing for those platforms. Indie developers are different because they're taking on a risk. And it's funny because I, I, I knew that developers on PlayStation and Xbox had to pay a decent, you know, fair amount of money to get onto the platforms, but I never really knew how much it was. So in mm. researching for this question of the week, I tried to find out how much that is. And it's funny because it's actually a little bit shrouded in mystery. I think both mm. Sony and, and Microsoft have NDAs for their developers where they're not allowed to talk about the cost of the development kits. And the developer kits come with two, I mean, generally they include hardware and software. And so if Mm -hmm. you're developing for those platforms, you need the combination of hardware and software to be able to produce the games that that go onto the platforms. And and it's like a special version of of a PlayStation. Although I will say that Xbox, uh, or Microsoft has has said that any Xbox One now can be a development platform. Mm -hmm. It can can be... Convert into development hardware, which is hmm. which does make things less expensive. But to put this into perspective, what I was able to find as far as kind of reported or uh, reported costs, um, mm-hmm. it looks like developing on the PlayStation, it, the cost varies, I think, based on the developer, but the average costs or median cost is around $2,500 to get started. Okay. Um, with the Xbox, there's a $500 fee, but then there's an additional fee of a few hundred dollars, and then you also have to buy the equipment. You have to buy mm-hmm. an Xbox for 400 bucks. Right, right. And then the Wii U is actually rumored to be about $5,000 or more to develop huh. for. This is a lot of money for an indie developer, especially if you've sure. never done a game. I mean, what's so cool about iOS is it's been a really fantastic platform for indie developers because you really just need $100 in a Mac. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of them have Macs already. And so right. it's cheap to get onto iOS, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. uh, especially compared to these other platforms. And so it will be interesting 
from that perspective because the barrier to entry will be lower for the indie developer community to get onto the Apple TV. Now, I'm, I'm basing this on the assumption that Apple's going to maintain the same type of developer program for the Apple TV that they've had for phone and, and Mac. For yeah, that's reasonable. Mac. Yeah, in fact, I won't be surprised because they unified those two developer programs recently. Mm-hmm. So you just pay the one fee and you can develop on anything Apple makes. I won't be surprised right. if the Apple TV is just added to the existing oh, yeah. developer yeah, that agreement. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. One thing that will be, and then the other thing is, you know, you're, you'll be developing on a Mac, but you'll eventually be pushing this out to an Apple TV. Right, so um, you need to buy a $150 box. Exactly, which is a really low barrier to entry again. And mm. so I don't think, uh, so I think what's going to happen is you're going to see a ton of new creative games, a lot of really crappy games. You know, I think you're going to see, like, it, when the iPhone first started allowing third-party applications, there were a lot of fart apps. And I right. think you, uh-huh. I think I think there's going to be a gold rush mentality as far sure. as developers are concerned with the Apple TV, mm-hmm. and I think you're going to see a lot of really crappy games, a lot of clones. Um, it's going to be have a very Wild West kind of feel to it at first, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. just based on Apple's history with other devices. But I also think you're going to see some amazing games rise to the top. Um, just recently, one of the popular iOS games, uh, Alto's Adventure. Mm. is an endless runner where you're on a snowboard and it's really right. beautiful game like it's very well oh, yeah, it's done great. the artwork yeah, is one. great the music is great and it just hit finally hit android after you know months and months of being out on mm-hmm. ios I, I think you're going to see some games like that rise to the surface based on what we were talking about with hardware and the capacity that the new apple tv is probably going to have for gaming i suspect what we're going to see is uh, a lot of casual games but but mm. I think you're going to see the really beautiful and well-crafted casual games rising to the top. I think you'll see like all the Lego games, for example, that are on all the consoles and that have made it to iOS. I think you're going to see those on the Apple TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of this, so there will be big players that come to the Apple TV. I think EA is going to be on it immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, they, I certainly expect them to launch with a few key developers so they can demo stuff and that. Right. Kind of thing. And just so that there'll be something, because if this thing actually launches in November, you know, which seems likely, then that's two months or something for developers to get stuff ready for it, which is very short. So they're going to yeah. need some developers that they've given some lead time to. And that's the thing that always made me suspicious about the September rumors for the Apple TV, because mm. it felt very un-Apple-like to give developers so little lead time. I right, mean, if you look right. at every other new product launch, and I realize the Apple TV is an existing product, but as a third-party developer product, it's a new product. Mm-hmm. They've given developers plenty of time to get up to speed, and if this thing really does ship you know, in November, I don't think that's enough time for developers to really go after it, and I think that's why right. the gold rush mentality is going to be enhanced. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be yeah. crazier than normal. Yeah, I also think, though, that that means that the the Apple TV may well face the same kind of chicken and egg problem that a lot of other platforms do that are trying to get off Mm -hmm. the ground, which is who's going to buy an Apple TV unless there are apps on it? You know, why would you buy the new one now if there's really no difference between it and the existing Apple TV? Um, and conversely, who's going to develop for it if there aren't any users? Because right. the only people that actually play your games are people who buy a brand new Apple TV at this point. So, you know, that's my one worry is that you've got this potential for both developers and users to kind of hold back while they wait for the other to get going. Yeah, I, um, I, I do think Apple's going to make a point of this. 
-hmm. And I think they're going to be talking about how if you've been developing for the Mac, for sorry, for iOS, then developing for Apple TV is easy. I right. mean, it's the same fundamental architecture. It's the same mm -hmm. OS, actually, under the hood. Right. And so I think they're going to pause and sort of make a big deal out of how easy it will be for developers. But it's going to be weird because you're going to be in the audience and there are going to be a bunch of other analysts or media people in the audience and no developers. And they're going to pause for a moment to talk about how great this is for developers and there won't be any developers in the room. Uh, yeah. And that's why WWDC seemed like such a natural launch point for the Apple TV mm -hmm. and why a September event feels so strange because right. they need to take a moment to talk to developers about this new platform they're announcing mm -hmm. and there aren't going to be developers in the room. And that's right. a bit odd. So. Mm. No, that's a good point. So in the last few minutes that we have on this topic, um, I know there's some other stuff you wanted to talk about. One of my big questions has been, how are you going to control the thing? And obviously there's a new remote control that's been yeah. reported on by various people as well. But you know, is that going to be the only way to control it? And is that going to be good enough for really compelling gaming? No, I think there will be Bluetooth controllers, but it opens up a really interesting problem. I mean, first of all, the remote is going to have a combination of fixed buttons and a touch screen. They seem to, it seems like they're going to make a really big deal out of Siri. What's, what's an interesting problem with console gaming is you can't look at your hands. Right. And so if developers ha are expected to rely on the touchscreen for people to play a game that they're looking at the TV to play, I think that's going to be problematic. And mm -hmm. developers, that's going to be an interface problem developers are going to have to figure out. And it's true that you'll be able to buy, I, I mean, I think we can expect that you'll be able to buy Bluetooth controllers. But Apple's going to have to divine a spec for these Bluetooth controllers. Right, Otherwise, right. controllers could be all different shapes and sizes and have different buttons. And that just opens up a lot more opportunity for confusion. And so I mm -hmm. think that, I mean, if you look, PlayStation has an iconic controller and Xbox has an iconic controller. Right. And in fact, one of the complaints people had about the Wii U was the touchscreen because it encouraged developers to rely on the touchscreen. And then that meant you were bouncing back and forth between your television and the controller with your mm -hmm. eye contact. And right, that made right. it a subpar gaming experience mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the controller thing, you know, as we talk about sort of these grab bag of random topics at the end on the Apple TV for gaming, the controller is an interesting problem that we don't know anything about. I hope that Apple's thought this through and they have a controller spec. Um, mm -hmm. that they can, that developers will be able to count on because it seems right. that that's going to be a necessity. Well, and presumably at least one actual piece of hardware that will ship right at launch too because, you know, having right. specs one thing, but unless somebody's actually built it, yeah. uh, whether it's Apple or some partner or other, um, you know, then it won't do anybody any good. Um, so that's the other thing is, you know, again, with the short timelines, unless they've got something lined up ahead of time, that's, that's going to fall kind of through the cracks a little bit. I could picture them having developed a spec and an actual controller with some third-party mm -hmm. manufacturer. Right. But right. then Logitech they, or yeah, yeah, right, right. But then they say, "Hey, and everybody can do this." And I could right, picture right. being a moment on stage, kind of a mm -hmm. thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. So, uh, in terms of other topics, kind of content and social, I think were a couple of the other things that we're going to talk about. So, right. you know, Con game hardcore game consoles have some pretty heavy-duty content right. from a mature perspective, and Apple's always been quite protective of its users in that respect. Yeah, and I think they will continue to be, and I think that's going to drive home how much this really will be a casual gaming device, right, mm -hmm. uh, or gaming platform. It, you know, it, there are some games. Yeah, there, I mean, all the mature games that are on, I mean, mature rated games that mm -hmm. are on Xbox and PlayStation, 
uh, I don't think you're going to see any of those on the Apple TV. I just right. don't think Apple's going to change its policies. And I think people are going to complain about that. And I think Apple's going to be called prudes. And uh, there are going to be some brief moments of hypocrisy where Apple lets something slip through that they shouldn't have. And then everybody mm-hmm. says, hey, how can we let that through? But I think in the end, there are not going to be mature games on that, which is going to help Sony and Microsoft sort of maintain mm-hmm. their culture. Yeah. So, but I do, do also think that console gaming is going to, that the market is going to get bigger as a result. Because if you're a casual gamer, the only thing you can buy if you want a console gaming device is the Wii U, which is, you mm-hmm. know, starts at over 300 bucks. Yeah. And yeah. I think a $150 casual gaming device, it's also a streaming device. I, I think that's going to be a lot more appealing to people. And I think in the same way that iOS, that the iPhone dramatically expanded, the handheld gaming market, I think you're going to see not quite as dramatic an expansion, but I think more people are going to be gaming on their TVs than used to be. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's a key thing with this whole approach is, I mean, I think, you know, the Wii really kind of was the first proper console to do this and it, you know, did change things. It did expand the market. You had families playing games together in a way that they hadn't been before, but ultimately you were still paying several hundred dollars for the device and quite a bit for games too, such that you could only ever have probably a few games in most families. Whereas, you know, if Apple brings across, you know, it's $150 hardware, so probably half or less the price of competing consoles, and then they bring across the pricing and business models from the iOS app store, I think, right. you know, that's the other half of this you've never had, really, um, on console gaming. And I think that's what could make this succeed where everybody else has failed. Yeah, I think gaming prices is something that we're, that deserves a very particular mention. I, the mm-hmm. games are going to be so much cheaper. The games mm-hmm. that you can play on your TV. I mean, right. to, to, you know... Games on any of the other consoles are that's are the cheapest twenty bucks, and that's when you're buying them on sale. Right, and they get up to sixty dollars, and so mm-hmm. unless that you're really dedicated, and this is a hobby of yours, you're not spending right. this much money, and you're just not gaming. Yeah, and I think people are going to be able to buy games for the television that costs you know five dollars, much more like the indie market is on PlayStation mm-hmm. and Xbox, where you can get these games for ten, fifteen, even five dollars. Right. I think you're going to see a lot more of that. Yeah, I, w- I wonder if you might even see, you know, today you have this concept of the universal app that works on iPhone and iPad. I right. wonder if you might even see some apps saying, okay, this is a universal app that now includes the Apple TV as well because it expands the addressable market for your game. You know, somebody might not want to buy it if they could only play it on their iPhone, but they also have the opportunity to play it on the Apple TV, especially right. if there are things like, I mean, there's, there's a whole set of questions which we don't have time to go into now, but, you know, in-app purchases and advertising and stuff too. So yeah. to what extent, you know, are those things which are very much a part of the, uh, iOS gaming market oh, to what extent are they going to be part of the Apple TV as well yeah all these questions just make a September event feel so crazy to me but anyway yeah, yeah. Uh, let's, no, so the last thing I want to mention and then we got to m- make time I guess for our last uh, discussion is the social side of this uh, mm-hmm. you know on both PlayStation and Xbox there are pretty robust social networks you can play with strangers from all around the world you can even have voice conversations with these people as you play mm-hmm. um, Apple it doesn't have anything close to that right now. The best they have is right. Game Center, which mm-hmm. is not widely beloved. Um, right. But I think there is one social aspect where the Apple TV might have an edge. And you were just talking about universal apps and that you'll be able to play on your TV, on your iPad, on your phone. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that has the potential to be really cool is I could be playing a game on my Apple TV and playing a game with you while you're at home on your iPad or on your, or right. on the road on your iPhone and we could be playing the mm-hmm. same game together at the same time even though I'm on my television. I think that is a social side 
of mm-hmm. gaming that Xbox and PlayStation obviously can't touch because they don't have equivalent mobile devices out in the world. Right. And right. The closest thing to it is that Xbox and Windows 10 devices can now play the same games. So right. you have a Windows 10 laptop or something, but it's not a mobile, not right. a truly mobile device. Yeah, and so I think this is one this is one particular instance where I think the Apple TV could actually have an edge in social gaming. Other than that, mm-hmm. I don't think you're going to see the big sort of Xbox Live type network on right. the Apple TV. Right. Yeah, that's not really Apple's thing anyway, it seems like. No. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm, I've written a piece today that will go up on Tech Pinions tomorrow, which dives into some of this stuff, but also kind of talks quite a bit about the content side of things, because I think that's the whole other side of this. When, you know, you talk about an open SDK, everybody immediately thinks about gaming, but, you know, the Roku has had an open channel store, essentially, to which anybody can submit channels, and you've seen a proliferation of other kinds of video content on there, you know, in, in interesting niche categories like religious content, for example, um, fitness, um, which is a big category on the iOS app store, but is non-existent on the Apple TV. I think there are all these other categories that could be really big from a video perspective. Um, so I think that's another thing that's worth watching for next week is see if there are any new channels that come out on that basis and then, you know, think about the potential for those. And as I say, I've written about that a bit for that, that piece. So I'll, um, when this goes out, that will be up. So I'll include a link um, on the website to that as well. Um, so our final brief topic is um, the announcement this week as part of the uh, IFA conference in, in Berlin um, that Android Wear devices will now uh, work in at least a limited fashion with uh, iPhones um, so that you could pair you know, a Samsung or LG smartwatch running Android Wear to your iPhone. Um, so Aaron, any kind of initial reaction to that news? I have no idea why Google did it. <laughs> That's my reaction. I, I, I mean, they're not going to be serving ads on watches. And as long as that's true, I cannot understand the reason to make Android Wear devices compatible with uh, Apple devices. Yeah. I mean, if the reason is like it's having Android Wear as a way to enhance the Android ecosystem so that they could drive their ad revenue model in, uh, you know, in the Android space, that totally makes sense to me. But to enhance the iOS space in a way that doesn't seem to connect at all with anything Google's doing in terms of its revenue, uh, I just don't get it. I don't understand the value in it. Um, that said, Android, you know, Google's always sort of had this idea of getting Android wherever they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like they're working on this, and, and maybe they plan to figure out a way to monetize this someday, but yeah. given that it's Google, who knows if that's the case. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, I think the one explanation might be and to take a step back, it's quite a handicapped on iPhone because um, you can't do any third-party apps. So it's only Google apps. So things like Google Now and so on will still uh, work. Uh, notifications from any app can be passed through to Android Wear just as they can with any other wearable that you pair with iPhone. Um, but there's some weird stuff like Wi-Fi on the devices won't work, um, which, you know, it's independent. The whole point is it's independent right. of the smartphone that you're using with, but they've turned that off if it's paired with an iPhone. So there's some strangely sort of artificial handicapping going on as well as the obvious stuff. But the one thing that does make sense to me is, you know, the Apple... Um, or rather the iPhone has always been the source uh, and home of some of Google's most lucrative customers, which always seems counterintuitive. But, right. um, you know, the average iPhone user spends more time on the device. They spend more money through the device, um, spend more money on buying the device. You know, these are higher spending customers. And as such, it's often been said, and it's very hard to confirm this, but it seems likely that Google actually makes more money from iOS than it does from Android in terms of use, where the usage is and where the real money is and, um, and monetizing through advertising. So to, to the extent that they want 
people on iPhones using Google services and Android Wear is kind of heavily Google service centric, especially when it's missing the third party apps. It kind of this is a way of saying, okay, you can stay in Google world. Okay, you may like the iPhone hardware, you may like the iPhone software, but you clearly like Google services. This is a way to extend those to your wrist in a way that probably Apple Watch will never allow you to do. So things like Google now being first and foremost, um, you know, Google Calendar, Gmail, and so on being tightly integrated into it. So that that's the one element of it that kind of makes sense to me. But if you're going to do that, why not go the whole hog and make it a really compelling device? And, yeah. and this artificial handicapping just seems to kind of be a really bizarre kind of counterpoint to all that. Um, you know, I do think there is, you know, Apple with Apple Watch has left a significant price umbrella under which others can come in and compete. And, you know, my assumption's always been, you know, the Fitbits, the Pebbles and so on that are kind of cross-platform or platform agnostic would always take a lot of that opportunity. But, um, you know, it seems Google and Android were as interested in that too. I don't know how much Samsung and LG are going to be pushing the fact that their smartphones work well with iPhone and clearly their intention is to sell their own smartphones, but it's an interesting move. But yeah, it's slightly sort of strategically baffling at this point. Yeah. All right, well, let's just wrap up with our, with our weekly pick and it's my turn to, to do this this week. And as anybody who's listening for the first time, our weekly pick is a segment where one of us recommends something that we've been using and enjoying and think others might benefit from as well. Um, it could be music, it could be a movie, it could be a TV show. Um, in this case, it's going to be an app. And we think this is the first app that we've done as a weekly pick. Um, there's an app that launched late last year um, called Wildcard. And it was um, the brainchild of a guy called Koivine, who used to be um, one of the head designers at the New York Times and is very well respected as a designer. And he kind of was one of the first people to really come up with this concept and uh, evangelize this concept of cards as a user interface element on, on mobile apps and elsewhere. Um, and so when it originally launched late last year, it was kind of a, a browser essentially, but that used a card metaphor rather than web pages as the kind of core unit of information. That was an interesting experiment, didn't really go anywhere. But just in the last couple of weeks, they relaunched Wildcard. And what it is now is a news app, but it uses cards as a way to make this sort of news easily digestible in chunks. And one of the things I find interesting about it, and of course I'm using it alongside Apple News, I'm using it, um, you know, occasionally I dip into the, the official Twitter app, which now has a news tab as well. There are lots of ways now that you can get kind of quick digests of what's going on in the world. One of the things I like best about Wildcard is it's not just news driven. A lot of it goes kind of a bit deeper than the immediate news headlines and that kind of thing. And it has this nice sort of clustering of articles around a particular topic, such that there may be a headline. But when you tap on that, it has a little circle with a number in it, and that means that there's you know maybe five other articles behind it that drill down further into that topic. And so it's a really fun way to um, discover not just kind of what's going on right now in the news, which I think Apple News is doing a, a good job at actually as well, but it allows you to read sort of in depth behind the news, which is something I think Apple News could learn from. But you know, even for now, this is a free app. Um, they're apparently going to monetize it over time with advertising, but for now, it's pretty much ad-free except for on the websites you end up linking through to. But it's a great way to get little snippets of news and, and importantly, to get a little bit of context behind the news. So the app is Wildcard. That's all one word, and it's a free app available on the iOS App Store. Maybe available on Android too. I'm not sure. So that kind of wraps us up for today. Um, we will be um, podcasting again next week. We need to figure out the logistics of that because I'm going to be at the Apple event on Wednesday when we normally uh, record, and I'm going to another industry event next week too. But we'll certainly have a, an episode for you next week at some point with something of a roundup of, of the week's news with a focus on new iPhones, Apple TVs, and everything else we've been talking about today. And who knows, maybe there'll be one more thing 
uh, to talk about as well. So thanks. <laughs> I don't know for, how they uh, fit it in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either, actually, either, for that matter. Um, but anyway, thank you for being with us as always, our listeners. I'm Jan Dawson, and Aaron Miller is my co-host. Uh, we thank you for joining us and look forward to talking to you again next week.